Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. This is Stephen Moe speaking, and I'm really glad you could join me as we're going to get the chance to speak with Colin Haberton. This conversation is one of those wide-ranging ones where we touch on a whole lot of topics. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it, and in particular, we focus in on what impact is and how we measure it. If you do enjoy this, then why not check out some of the other episodes in the back catalog, because there's more than 320 of those. What I'm trying to do with Seeds is build up a database of stories of people doing inspiring things that we can all learn from. And we don't get into super contemporary questions like politics or sport that would date these conversations. Instead, we're asking deeper questions about why people do what they do and what it is that motivates them. You can find out more at theseeds.nz. And why not hit subscribe in your favorite podcasting app? And one other brief plug, I've started a second podcast with the Institute of Directors, which focuses on leadership and governance. It's called Board Matters, so you might want to check that out as well. They're just short 15-minute conversations with really exciting experienced directors. And there's a link in the show notes. Now let's get straight into this interview with Colin. Well, it's a real pleasure to welcome Colin Haberton, who's the co-founder of The Relative Group. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be with you, Stephen. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation because I would love to find out more about what you're doing. Um, and in particular, I love the, the, the thinking that we can do about impact. And what does that actually mean? You know, I imagine the future, but what does it mean today? How can we get there? Um, But before we talk about some of that, what I'd love to do is go back in the past and find out a bit about your history. So can you let us know, um, you know, when you were four or five years old, what was life like for you? It's an interesting reflection. The way that I feel about it now is obviously different different to the way I I felt about it then I lived a fairly protected um, and one could say, although not wealthy, a a privileged life in what was apartheid South Africa. Um, I was born in a suburb just outside of Johannesburg. uh, And uh, at that time, both my parents were teachers. And I grew up in what was ostensibly a a multiracial environment in a racially segregated country. Um, And it was only much, much later in my late teens that um, that I had a sense for for what the politics was and all the social and economic implications um, of of the country that I lived in. My my life was spent living on on a school's property. As I said, my my, my parents were educators. And and, and so I had a playground like no other, you know, lots of lots of sports fields, grew up very active. Um, had a number of friends from from a diverse set of backgrounds because the school that I was at was a boarding school. Um, And for the most part, there were a number of of young people there whose parents were activists. In fact, I only found out a generation later that that, that my grandparents were also involved in the struggle and and, uh, after living in South Africa in the 1960s had to leave the country almost overnight um, only for my father to come back and marry my mother and I was the product of that. So, so yeah, a, a, a protected and privileged life would be the best way to describe it, I think, Stephen. It's a really interesting thing because for most of us, we obviously didn't grow up in that environment. And I often mm-hmm. think I use this analogy or picture of a fish in the bowl. 
and the fish doesn't know that it's in the bowl. So yeah, yeah I guess looking back with the benefit of history and and knowing you know what would come, d- describe a little bit more because I'm just curious as a child growing up there, you know yeah. what, what was it like? Were were you aware like? Yeah, to be honest with you, I th- I, th- I think I can say I was almost blissfully unaware um, uh, to a fault. I think largely because I was placed, um, I found myself in a situation, as I said, that we lived, we lived on the property of a school that um, that almost was a microcosm of what what the the new South Africa became. But it was a false reality. The school that I went to was a a privileged private school that my parents were teaching at. Um, and and even uh, if, if I think about my own friendship group, you know, one of my best friends was um, a, a black South African um, guy. Um, and we'll get to the the, the, the gender issues of, of being at an all boys school for, for most of my life as well, which is a whole different transformation. But um, I think the the, the world that, that that I lived in was one where we as as young kids used to spend time in the center of Joburg. Uh, walking around freely together, you know, shoulder to shoulder, um, really going to the types of places I would never let my children go to these days. Um, and 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 I think it was in that set of circumstances that 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 I was personally never affected by some of the things that were going on. But that that doesn't change the reality, the realization as an adult of of the privilege that that you actually had in that circumstance, as protected as we were, and what what was happening around us from a social and political perspective, never mind the economic implications of, of, of the people that lived in those circumstances. Mm. Yeah. The benefit of hindsight, right. To, to look back and when, yeah. when, yeah, describe some of the, cause obviously there was massive amount of change there that happened. Mm. Um, mm. When, how old were you when that was happening and it was on your radar? Yeah. Um, so so I think you may remember that um, Nelson Mandela was was officially announced to be released from from prison um, after a referendum in the country in 1989. Um, I think uh, if, if if memory serves me correctly, it was he is uh, then released in early 1990. But the shift in in the politics of South Africa happened in almost you know my teen years, where I was able to suddenly start to come to terms with the with the realities of what this was. Suddenly, our history books were changing, not just the politics were changing. Um, and, and I think our entire country went through the most incredible transformation, um, um, situations of, of extreme violence um, as, as, as certain interest groups came to terms with what those changes were going to be. Um, and then the leadership of, of, I think we can all agree, one of the most uh, incredible and, and uh, servant-hearted leaders that the, the, the world has seen, certainly the modern world that we can think of in, in, um, in Nelson Mandela. So, so they, they, by the time I got to finishing school in 1994, that was the year of the first free elections in South Africa and what has become, you know, what post that is now referred to as the new South Africa, new flag, new cultural identity, and just almost a miracle if one thinks about how tenuous the politics was at that particular time, that the leaders of our country were able to come together and and not, I, I think, you know, one talks about reconciliation, but I think the bigger word of that is forgiveness. You know, the fact that, that a, a nation of people could actually find the forgiveness in their hearts to 
look at where we've come from and say, actually, there's a future we need to be a part of together. Um, and tolerance is the only option because when one considers all the reasons for not wanting to be tolerant and for wanting to feel vengeful, there's certain, you know, there was certain reason for that. Um, as I said, I mean, I was just like my whole consciousness was only emerging at that stage, but I did have the benefit of being a part at quite significant stages in my past of, of seeing, feeling and, and uh, realizing these things. Yeah, that's amazing. And it's actually resonates with me because my final year in high school was 1994. So we're probably almost okay. exactly the same age and generation. Yeah. And yet for yeah. me as an 18 year old, you know, here in, in Christchurch, New Zealand, like it, mm. none of that was happening here. And so I'm, I'm just thinking it must have advanced your, like, there's just so much change going on. And and the yeah. amazing thing to me is that if you look at the world, like the Berlin Wall was coming down in the similar yeah. era, you know, um, mm -hmm. the Soviet Union and all of these things mm -hmm. were just massive changes that decades before people would have said that will never happen. That will never change. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, within yeah. a decade, so much change yeah. happened. Exactly. A, a, a phenomenal. Um, and. And isn't it interesting that these that these collisions in in the zeitgeist of the world could all happen at the same time? And uh, just a privilege, certainly, for me to be able to reflect back on those things, trying to make sense of them. And now, you know, a generation later, looking back and thinking what actually happened, uh, especially in the context of, of of the geopolitics we're dealing with today, you know, COVID mm -hmm. and what's happening in Europe, and yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. So um, as you're getting towards the end of your high school, like, did you have mm. an area that was interesting to you more than other areas? Did you know what you wanted to do after? Yeah, I had, uh, you know, when I went to university, um, bearing in mind that that, that now the, the country was going through a shift in enormous identity, you know, that transformation kind of spilled into my university years. And, um, you know, we stood um, almost in the center of, of how those gyrations within society changed. So student politics was alive um, at that time. Um, it was not something that I participated in. Um, certainly from my perspective, I didn't feel that I had, you know, any, any right, certainly to, 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 to have something to, to, to fight for. I would just wanted to be in a in, in, in part of almost kind of just witnessing it and, and wanting to make a positive contribution and just understanding that these changes do need to take place. Um, and they did. Um, some of them were destructive, you know, but uh, but in all cases, I think that that relatively speaking, um, we were saved uh, a, a lot of the pain that other countries, like, for example, what happened in the Balkans around the same time went through. Um, and, uh, and I'm incredibly mm -hmm. thankful for that. I think when I think about my my future at that point in time, being 18 to 21 years old, you know, when I did my, my undergraduate degree, um, that was the time where I was introduced to, you know, I studied politics, I studied economics, I studied, I studied psychology and um and and philosophy. And those were and those were an interesting intersection of things, you know, they teach you how to think, but uh and hopefully have, have have good argumentation for a few things, but it certainly didn't make me a doctor, an accountant, or a lawyer. Mm. So, so I came out of university with a good education, and with the sense that, you know, the world and how it works um, can be understood from these different perspectives. And the one perspective that I walked away from is that when you look at business systems, um, yes, they measured in transactions, but what binds them together is relationships. 
relationships that are founded on trust. And when that trust breaks down or when that relationship is governed by power dynamics that leave levels of inequity, whatever it is, differences in information, differences in, in agency, um, there, there is likely going to be exploitation in some shape or form. Um, and in order to build really sustainable relationships, if we talk about impact today, I think that we are going through one of those conscious, one of those um, consciousness transformations where suddenly the world is now appreciating how important it is that we remain healthy as a species uh, and what the conditions of that are, where the environment um, has been placed in trying to um, uh, uh, maintain itself despite the exploitation um, that it's had to suffer um, through whatever our kind of commercial ends might be. So, yeah, looking back at that, I, I had a sense of wanting to be involved in, 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 in thinking about and being in the practice of how building and binding relationships was possible. And so my first step, the first real point of interest that I had was around the phenomenon of loyalty programs um, in those days. You know, airline programs existed, but it was around about the time I left university that these things started to emerge um and 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 really started to to think about what that meant you know what do incentive programs look like and how can they be structured uh, not only in the context of consumer products and services you know how you your your bank or your insurance company or your airline but uh, but go much further than that and that became a, a new journey for me mm. That's great. It's really interesting. Um, I mean, even thinking about loyalty programs, what what do they signify and and what do they mean? And um, I was involved in a company for a while uh, on a secondment basis. So I, I'm a lawyer mm. and I was in the in-house mm -hmm. legal team. And one of the interesting things, this is more recently than you're talking about. One of the mm -hmm. interesting things was tracking what did people buy in the shop, you know, and then thinking mm -hmm. through okay, if this person likes to buy two chocolate bars every Saturday, you know, and um, let's put a discounted rate that offer them an incentive to get this other thing that's related. Um, yeah, so yeah. I, I guess loyalty schemes interest me. That's where I'm getting mm -hmm. to. Um, what, what shape did that take for you or what were you involved in regarding that? Yeah. Yeah, so programs very similar to the one that you're describing. Um, I think what, what I found fascinating about loyalty programs was the intersection of products and services and obviously the companies that deliver those, but being able to then be customer orientated. You know, who is the consumer of this particular product and service? What is the frequency in which they're consuming these products and services? What is the location that that's taking place? Um, how recently did they go through that purchase? And then being able to look at those, those, those perspectives and start to be able to get to some, not just assumptions about what that person's behavior was, but through testing, through exactly the types of mechanisms that you're talking about. If we do this, what happens then? The whole testing and experimentation, you know, creating these living laboratories, you know, these experimentations with, with things like vouchers and coupons to get you know, a particular consumer to buy a product and service. But what I, what I found fascinating was the thought that if we were to take that thinking outside of a microcosm of getting somebody to buy a particular company's products and services, 
how could we move that thinking? How could the principles of that, which are basically in incentive systems, can that apply at a farm at a slightly more macro level? You know, how can we get positive behaviors from not just individuals relating to products and services? How can we get those incentives to being able to get people to to take up health services when they needed them, or if they found themselves in cycles of addiction, for example, how could those be incentivized to to move them in a different direction, get them on the right track? Um, and 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 like with anything, there's 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 two sides of that coin because I think coming to the understanding that number one, human beings can be incentivized, and and that we are mobilized by those things, that can shift to one end of the scale where you're using those sets of principles, for example, for online gaming, you know, casinos and everything that exploded at that particular point in time, the early, early 2000s, not to say that it's gone away at all, but also being able to say, well, how can you actually apply that to create positive behavior, the right relationships with the right stakeholders for the right reasons and creating instead of a vicious circle, is there a possibility for creating a virtuous circle in the way relationships are binded together it's really interesting to me because i think you're right there if you can have those incentives and i'm just thinking of a silly example here but my daughter is mm -hmm. learning spanish using duolingo mm -hmm. and duolingo yeah. has this amazing thing which is a streak so every mm -hmm. day that you come back and do a lesson you get one more day mm -hmm. on your streak and so it becomes this mm -hmm. psychological thing of I'm up to, you know, 85 days in a row. I'm up to 137 mm -hmm. days in a row. And it's that, you know, it's a really subtle thing. Like you wouldn't think it would matter, mm -hmm. but actually that incentive yeah. causes you to come yeah. back. Um, so yeah. I, I can see where it would be applicable in many areas of our life in a positive way. How can we support people, right? Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And I think that, They, people call it gamification, but my concern in, in kind of calling it that, which, which I think is an extension of game theory, if you want to get to the, the theoretical part of it, which I'm sure you're familiar with, but, but the gamification also almost makes it as if we are playing with people. Now, that, that, that can be it. You, know, you can start exploiting people in, in that process um, towards certain behaviors, but let's take Duolingo as an example. It's an excellent example, and many apps are designed in the same with the same principles. It's to keep that behavior going, that positive behavior going. But then, as as I've kind of looked deeper into this, not everybody is motivated by that type of incentive. Is achievement orientated by giving points or streaks, etc.? Uh, my daughter, for example, um, as soon as it kind of presents this kind of performance requirement, she loses interest. And I think that that's also. Um, something that needs to be taken into account when to looking at, for example, systems of impact, that you need to cater for different responses from different people. And that can be affected not only by just the people that they are, but it can be determined by the circumstances that they find themselves in. There are conditions for actually seeing those incentives take place. And I think it becomes a fascinating um, and, and, and fulfilling exercise intellectually as well as you know, practically to try and find what are the things that um, can be um, discovered using information and attaching that to, to people's behavior, um, but then being able to guide them through that process and making sure they are part of co-creating that process with you. Because that's when the change happens. You know, it's, it shouldn't just be 
a behavior that they're not even aware of. I mean, there's so many things I've had to come to terms with. I don't know if it's the same for you, Stephen, where it's, you, you reflect back and say, what, what motivated me to do that? That just doesn't make any sense in my intellect. Mm. But, but, but there's a drive, you know, there's something subconscious that, that obviously made me um, walk down that road. And so, um, yeah, I think that, that these are the underlying factors talking about, you know, impact that, that are really important that need to be considered in, in this, this new transformation that we're going through as a, as a global society, I believe. Mm. Yeah, it's really good. And I'm just reflecting on the last episode of the podcast was with Alana Kilmartin on advice about career advice. And one of the things mm -hmm, we were mm -hmm. talking about there was the fact that young people oftentimes, you know, think of yourself at age 18 or, you know, you, you haven't got a lot of life experience and yet you're asked to choose. Do you want to be a doctor? Do you want to be a lawyer? <laughs> Do you want to be an accountant? Yeah. Do you want to be a carpenter? Yeah. Whatever it is, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. if if we could somehow integrate in some of these concepts so that we actually knew individually yeah. what motivates people and, and we mm -hmm. had a way to educate young people, what a mm -hmm. better world we would be in if we knew, you know, what it was that incentivized your daughter as opposed to my mm -hmm. daughter. <laughs> and mm -hmm. we could actually integrate this in to the, mm -hmm. the paths that they're choosing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think, and I think that there needs to be more space allowed for that. Um, I mean, I just think about the responsibility that we were left with as kids at 18, like, Oh, what are you going to be? If, if you can analyze a lot of those, 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 um, that decision-making process, um, we were in no position to be making decisions about the rest of our lives at that point. But, but imagine being able to say, well, you know, what is the purpose that drives you? What is the, what are the things that make your heart sing or break your heart? Because those are the things that are probably worth investing your time and energy into. Um, I don't know if it's the same for you and for other listeners, but you know, it's the, the older I get, the more I'm brought back to those two things, you know, the, the, those motivations, you know, the things that really, um, create uh, like inspire me are things that inspired me when I was a kid I just didn't know how to how to translate that into the type of action or decisions I've been I've been fortunate that some of the the kind of the inklings that I've had that were certainly not like crafted with expert thinking um, have led to a place where I'm doing the work and and involved in in building relationships that that I wouldn't I wouldn't change for anything you know it's mm -hmm. I've, I've I've found my purpose but but what an opportunity it would be to be able to explore that with young people so they felt directed and motivated from from the time they invest their their their, their potential into into their futures yeah and and riffing off of that imagine how many young people head down a path which is not very productive and yeah. Yet this, the, what leads them down that path is potentially an interest in positive things, you know, that, yeah. that actually would be really productive and really helpful if they could get on the right um, way of channeling that energy yes. into something yeah. that actually is impactful and positive. So absolutely. Yeah, yeah. it's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So what happened next yeah. um, in terms of your career? And, and I'm keen to mm. kind of bring us up to date with what you're doing today. So maybe just talk mm. us through some mm. of the transitions that came next. Yeah, connect that bridge. So the the, the loyalty program um, phase of my life um, 
took me working for a number of consultancies that designed and managed loyalty programs. And, and that eventually got to working not only on the outside and working with a number of companies, creating, managing, um, and, um, and evolving those programs to suit their needs, but to working for a particular financial services business, a large financial services provider in, in South Africa. So more of a corporate, you know, if I could describe it, more of a corporate experience. Um, spent a few years in that, but, but just um, ended up finding it not necessarily uh, fulfilling. Um, then I came into contact with an old friend of mine who, who very quickly became the love of my life. And, um, and, and what, what actually connected us, you know, the passion that, that, that bound us together was exactly this, 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 this desire that I had inside me in my mid-30s to say, you know, I look at all these loyalty programs, but all we're doing is getting people to find ways to buy stuff that in some cases they just don't really need. And ultimately, it's not going to make any difference to them. And yet, being able to understand that as a person could be the highest potential that you could actually put inside somebody's heart in mind in order to get them to make changes towards the futures that they wanted to, to, to live in, whether they are individuals or whether those are institutions. Um, uh, that person, uh, not only an old friend, became uh, my business partner and, and, and wife, business partner first before wife. And, uh, and her name is Gabrielle. And she's the other co-founder, obviously, as you may have guessed. And, and, and what we started doing is taking this principle, this idea of effectively relationship economics. You know, what are the systems around how and why relationships um, operate? And how can we take that thinking, take it out of a, a customer a products and services context and apply it to business systems? You know, share this with entrepreneurs, business leaders, um, take this into companies so they can start to look at their businesses from a stakeholder perspective. Um, and Stephen, I know that you work, uh, do some work with um, the Institute of Directors. Um, and, and I mean, as you know, the whole, uh, uh, what do you call it? The, the era of governance, corporate governance has emerged um, over that period of time. You know, you look at the last 20 years and how things have evolved. And what is fundamentally connected to good governance is, is appropriate stakeholder engagement. It's understanding the relationships before you start considering the transactions. Because if you get the relationships right, if those are founded on the right principles, that you can apply the right practices and the processes that bind those two things together, that equals good governance. Um, and it is about a far more... Um, I think, considered and inclusive um, approach to the way decision-making takes place. I and mean, that's, that's what I understand governance to be. And um, so that's what, what, what myself and, um, and, and, and Gabs did. We, we, we established a business, but the business was almost just a platform for us to see whether this idea that we had, she came from a, a, de a development studies background, so she had far more of the technical understanding of operating in those environments, working with social enterprises, working with nonprofits, with funders, government and and uh, private sector funders, philanthropy foundations, and so on. Um, and 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 that's how our that's how our business began 15 years ago. Wow, that's really interesting. I always love these. Uh, that's why I do the long form version of podcasts. Because I could have mm -hmm. just asked the opening question could have been, right, tell me about what you do today. But then we wouldn't have had the richness of understanding like the background that's led to what you do today. So um, mm -hmm. it, it reminds me of another interview mm -hmm. I did with someone named Sid Stalakar, and he's from India, mm -hmm. and he is mm -hmm. all about um, true wealth. 
and he focuses on the idea of reputation in an online mm-hmm. world that we, are, yeah. you know, our reputation is, is really important. And actually you can mm-hmm. value your reputation within communities. Um, and mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. if you have a certain reputation in this online community, as an example, that it would translate over to this other community. And so mm-hmm. could mm-hmm. we even, um, you know, have a system where that was transferable, that your knowledge here mm-hmm. applies over here. It's kind of similar yeah, concepts. Yeah. It's just getting me thinking again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's, I completely, that resonates with me very much. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'll send you a link to his interview because I think you'll enjoy it. It is, I think, an hour and a half long. So it's quite an in-depth one because he, <laughs> he uh, being from India, he was very influenced by the work of Gandhi and he lived on yes. a, a, a place that was started, you know, to celebrate Gandhi and things. But anyway, uh, back to your story. Mm-hmm. So you've been yeah. going for 15 years now. Um, yeah. I guess mm-hmm. one question I have for you is how is it running a business with a co-founder where you are also, you know, a married couple? <laughs> how is that? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm sure I'm speaking to a number of listeners that are in, are in, um, in, in committed relationships and have been living and perhaps even working with your partner, I suppose we end up doing it whether we, we run the business or not. Uh, I think I think one of the principles that we've applied to 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 the work that we do um, is always assessing to be very pragmatic about it at the division of labor. You know, any any system, whether you're parenting, we found this, whether we find this in our business, there are things that I like to do. There's things that Gabs likes to do. There's things that I don't like to do. And there's things that she doesn't like to do. And making sure that we're not forcing each other to do the things we don't want to do and that our business is in a place where we can ultimately get people who love doing the things that we don't want to do. That is the key to success, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's important to to maintain your focus on what your shared vision is because uh, sometimes those can actually be moving in different directions. Um, and I think that is, you know, you think about the idea of this whole relational economic system. You know, we, we talk about economics, not just from a commercial sense. I'm talking about the dynamics that, that bring and bind these things together. It does come down to sitting together and co-creating what you want that future to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we, we, we've tried to apply that in our parenting. We've tried to apply that in our business. Have we been successful? Many times, no. Uh, but I think the you know the passion that we have for each other as individuals, for the way we think and what goes on inside our hearts, is the things that bind us together. You know, we we do want the same things. We have different ideas of how to get to those things, and that's a beautiful thing. Um, but if uh, but if you don't take account for that and appreciate each other equally uh, in that process, and are there to be able to support each other in the gaps. And in the places where, you know, there, there are things that you may not want to do, but still need to get done. Um, you know, if you don't get that right, trouble ensues, you know, and that can affect your personal life as well. But but, but when we align, um, you know, it's incredible how inc- fulfilling and, and, and a level of completeness that that provides um, for us uh, as individuals and as a family. Yeah. Oh, that's really great. Thank you. And so tell us a little bit about what you're up to today. What 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 sort yeah. of work are you involved in? What sort of projects? Obviously, um, we're mm. doing this by Zoom because you're not in New mm. Zealand. So um, <laughs> yeah, what's the work going on there? What's the work going on in New Zealand as well? Yeah, so 
give a very <clears throat> a very quick um, timeline. So we started the business uh, 15 years ago, as I mentioned. Uh, we've worked with a whole range of different organizations in different contexts, from township entrepreneurs to significant um, uh, local, when I say local South African philanthropic foundations who fund um, social impact and environmental impact work through the organizations that deliver that work. Um, and in some circumstances, a few government agencies as well. So it's it's we've really had the privilege through various projects to see that take place. Um, in the course of that, uh, both of us have taken steps in terms of our own learning to to remain current. You know, keep up to date with what's happening around. Um, I dedicated myself to a very painful process of 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 an academic journey, which fortunately is now complete. Um, but but part of um, developing the thesis and the research that went into that, into responsible investing and decision-making of, of institutional investors, it was about understanding the value chain that sits behind the flow of capital um, on a global scale um, and to understand through the eyes of the intermediaries that are connected to that, you know, the, the, the owners of assets, the managers of those assets, the actual... Um, uh, contributors of those assets, people like you and me, you're putting money into pension funds and all the things that happen as a result of that. You know, that is that is where the fuel lines inside the engine of human society currently exist. Uh, and those are easily manipulated. Um, but what we have really enjoyed, I must say, that does that has brought joy, is that a concept like the importance, and I would just say it's the importance because I don't think it's a concept in itself, this whole ESG thing, Stephen, which I'm sure has come up in different conversations that you've had with people. Um, you know, environmental, social, and governance factors have always been considerations of a business, always been considerations of any institution. The difference is now that it's almost become like the new, um, the new fad, and it's not a fad. It's actually fundamental to any business model. The difference is the the appreciation that if you do not get those things right, your, your business and its sustainability from a profitability perspective and the difference it's going to make in society and to the environment is um, is going to be constrained. And so where our, where our organization has evolved is moving from a place of engaging in certain projects, working with clients to something where we've developed a set of tools and methodologies that actually assist organizations in building their capability to make sense of this. And I think it starts at understanding um, what impact is actually all about. And really, it's interesting you mentioned Duolingo. What are the definitions of this, of this whole world that that now is claiming impact or speaking about things like ESG what do people mean you know like my experiences of, of going to other English-speaking countries like Canada New Zealand the UK etc you know you can be speaking the same language but things are completely foreign what you understand things to be is completely different to to my context to my understanding and it's important like we find ourselves coming into societies that even look the same as ours to really get down to um i believe finding what are how do we create a common language between us now now i think what is what is in a very exciting evolution of that is is what's happening around company reporting you know if you think about what drives the way companies understand each other or investors understand investment opportunities they're looking at a device like a financial statement um, in the same way that in your world like you look at a contract where you've got to reduce the thing to a level of language that both parties understand in order for that relationship to ultimately be governed appropriately 
if if a lawyer puts together a contract that is full of legalese and complexity that the other um, party does not understand. I mean, effectively, there's a there's a shift in the agency because you are saying something that the other person is not necessarily understanding and then able to agree with. Now, the great thing about financial statements, if you think about them, you know, introduced with bodies like IFRS that create a level of standardization, suddenly there's a common language in which a business in Christchurch can understand a business in Cape Town. And despite the differences in geography and context, etc., a decision can be made with significant amounts of capital as to whether or not that business actually has what that investor might be looking for or what that recipient of capital is wanting from an investor. Um, and and with the shift in, in the IFRS framework in saying, okay, we don't only care about financial factors, but we do want to understand sustainability. We want to understand the environmental, social, and governance considerations that need to be taken into account. And we are going to look at systems that can provide that level of accountability, ways that we can build that common understanding founded on a common language. I personally believe that that is an indicator of the potential of a future where institutions and individuals can understand each other in a far greater way than they've ever done before. Mm. And to answer your question, like, what are we doing? We want to be at the point of, of being able to, whatever we can do to contribute to that, to, to support that process. How do you build the common language? How do you get to the Duolingo curriculum, you know, for all institutions, not just the ones that have got the money, the people and the time to do it, but all institutions so that there can be equity in the way that we understand what these things are, how they are applied, and how they ultimately are going to contribute to the flourishing of those institutions, the people that work in them, and the communities in which they operate. That's mm. that's really where we position ourselves now. That's really great. Well, I, I completely agree. We need more of this type of understanding. Um, in New Zealand, um, we've got the XRB, which sets the financial standards for New Zealand. So the accounting standards, mm -hmm. essentially. Um, and I'm really lucky to be on what's called their advisory panel. So that's giving mm -hmm. them input on, you know, from my perspective out in the world, what am I seeing, basically? Um, mm. But it's really interesting the the focus for the coming six months is all about climate-related disclosures and mm -hmm. the new changes which will be introduced. Not, you know, maybe in 20 years we'll introduce it. It's in 2023, right we now, are changing. Yeah. yeah, it's happening. So it's really fascinating to think about that because traditionally, if you think about reporting, like I'm automatically in my mind, I'm a little bit bored because I'm not really a numbers sort of person. Like, I can look at spreadsheets and understand them, but it's not really resonating with me, you know, like mm. the, all the columns and, and the profits and the losses and all this. Whereas mm. in the future, I think increasingly companies will be required to report on their impact and it's going to yeah. become much higher requirement. But I view this yeah. as a potentially a really positive change that our grandchildren yes, will thank us for. Because instead of focusing on, oh, well, here's the quarterly trading results, you know, and here's the numbers. If, if imagine if the companies were reporting on, well, we, we supported 75 families to get into social housing, you know, or we supported mm -hmm. pick your area and, you know, there's graphics to illustrate it and it's very clear 
And then the the key bit for me is that it's driving back to what's the purpose of the organization and how can we clearly report on the purpose so that there's a linking back. Because mm-hmm. I do worry, it, particularly in the world of social enterprise, which is a word that I'm tending to use the word impact enterprise more and more is a broader term. Mm-hmm. But the mm-hmm. principle is that you can say what you want, but you're going to have an awful lot of greenwashing or social washing if you say your purpose is this, but your reporting is some numbers on a page. Like we need mm-hmm. to make sure that that connection is happening, I think. Otherwise, yeah. it might not be so good. Mm. Exactly. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and isn't this conversation just the evidence of that, that, that we are sitting thousands of kilometers away from each other and and we're having a conversation where this where this level of appreciation and and not only what it's about but how it can be done is becoming a shared consciousness. I really do. Um, 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 the yeah, it's 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 just something that 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 is that is a, that is I think is affirming after after so many years of really believing that this is kind of where we need to get to. The fact that it is actually happening it's not just happening in one place; it's happening around the world. Um, and, the, and in the context of our business, you know, the work that we do in wanting to help organizations and build their capabilities to do this themselves, it isn't, it isn't um, uh, 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 unattainable. It certainly doesn't have the type of technical uh, in, involvement. Certainly it can get that technical. That means that, you know, you need to get specialists to now come in from the outside and do it. This actually is a transformation that an organization needs to go through. And like our daughters going through the process of learning new languages, it can be uncomfortable, but it is something where on the other side of that, this is what we're starting to see with the clients that we're working with, not only in South Africa, but um, through in Canada, in New Zealand, in, you know, the other, you know, 25 odd countries that we're working in is that, is that people and, and institutions are going through the same process. And by being able to take a more impact orientated approach where impact, certainly in our definition, is the differences in outcomes over certain time periods. It is a perfect way of being able to understand the concept because it's the same as profit. Profit is not a continuously generative process. Profit is the function of the difference between what you earn and what you spend, right? Whether you are an individual in a household or whether you want to take it to an institutional level, impact in that definition can be measured in the same way. And that is where I believe accountability, true accountability lies, because it's not just about the money that you generate. That is just an an, an indicator. But what are the implications of that? Where is that money going? You know, who are going to be the recipients of the benefits of that? But what are the costs that are borne in terms of actually translating all those inputs into the outputs that everybody takes a lot of pride in. What I'm interested in to see in organizations is that now they're caring about the outcomes. How did we get there? What does this mean? Where are we going? And how can this actually translate to potentially solving, um, to some extent, some of the challenges that we see in society and in the breakdown of relationships that are usually at the core of why things are not working? Mm. Yeah, I, I agree with you. You know, we're obviously on the same page here because the the thing that strikes me even about our conversation, how we open the conversation and you were telling us about your childhood and growing up mm. in a very privileged place and not really knowing even that you were in a privileged place. And I think mm. I like to think of it that these are paradigms of thinking 
and that there has to be a yes, shift, sir. a very vast shift from one paradigm of thinking, which in let's just use you as the picture, you know, as a child growing up, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. didn't really know, you didn't really understand that there was mm-hmm. injustice and that things weren't all okay. But mm-hmm. then there was a shifting point and it changed mm-hmm. and you moved into a new paradigm. And in the same way, yeah. both for individuals and companies, organizations, like you say, across the world, there is this shifting going on from the old conception, particularly a binary yes. around for-profit versus charity, you know, and all of that, yeah. towards a new conception, which is more mm-hmm. the organization needs to justify itself in a way that resonates with mm-hmm. the impact, which then resonates with what are we here for? <laughs> What's the purpose mm-hmm. that we were set up for? So yes, yeah, it's, yes. Yeah, it's really yeah. good. Well, what we'll do is yeah. we can put things in the show notes. So we'll put some links mm-hmm. to the website and people can click through to find out more. And yeah, I'm really mm-hmm. interested in um, staying on track with you as our respective careers progress and watching, you know, yeah. seeing what's going on, because that's great mm-hmm. if you've been able to expand into other countries and, you know, you're here in New Zealand. And um, I think the mm-hmm. more people who are focusing on these types of topics, the better, basically. <laughs> we yeah. we need to help yeah. shift people in their paradigm of thinking. So I just want to, I guess, finish up by saying thank you so much mm-hmm. for your time. Um, I know it's early morning for you <laughs> in South Africa. <laughs> so I really appreciate the sacrifice of coming and, and having a chat with me, but I've really enjoyed it and love to hear some of your story. So thanks for joining me today. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. Uh, it's great to be able to to find people that are thinking and feeling the same about this. And uh, I think you're right. I think the paradigm shift is necessary, but the evidence is that it is happening. Um, mm-hmm. And how great that uh, that we get a part to live in an era where that where that is taking place. Um, and I look forward, on a personal level, keeping in touch with you and um, seeing you soon in person potentially that's great we'll come over visit new zealand again and we'll catch up for sure <laughs> uh, it would be it, it, it would be a true pleasure thanks so much Stephen. thanks for having me well i do hope you enjoyed that conversation with con there was a whole bunch of highlights for me and i really enjoyed hearing about his childhood growing up in south africa if you enjoyed hearing his story then why not check out the website at the link in the show notes where there's a whole lot more about what they do. And don't forget, there's more than 300 other interviews in the back catalog. And one other brief plug, I've started a second podcast with the Institute of Directors, which focuses on leadership and governance. It's called Board Matters, so you might want to check that out as well. They're just short 15-minute conversations with really experienced directors. And there's a link in the show notes. Until next time! (music) 